It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important stories. That seems to me like government is establishing a religion. The latest in politics and world affairs. If you give people rights, women's rights, gay rights, whatever, there can't be equal rights if there are special rights. Today's current opinions and ideas. Surveys show that people still really prefer freedom over government force. Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation. And welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at Kim Munson dot com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. And we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. And I so appreciate each and every one of you for listening. Be sure and tell your friends and family about the Kim Munson Show. And uh, you can find the podcast of the show at the stream services, Spotify, iTunes, all of those. Uh, So each of you, you're treasured, you're valued, you have purpose today. Strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. Uh, My friends, we were made for this moment. And thank you to the team. That's producer Joe and Luke, Zach, Echo, Charlie, Nicole, Rachel, all of the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. I am blessed to work with really great people. We have pre-recorded these shows for Christmas week uh, with very special guests and able to spend more time with them. And uh, I'm really pleased to have on the line with me Bill Federer. He is the creator of the American Minute. Many times you hear that in between the shows, in between our number one and our number two. I mean, and go to AmericanMinute.com. It is unbelievable. The books and the information that is there. Bill Fetter, welcome to the show. Kim, great to be with you. Now, we are broadcasting, we're pre-recording, but broadcasting this on the 26th of December, and that is known as Boxing Day. And I uh, knew a woman that she actually had a, a Boxing Day brunch, and I hadn't really understood what Boxing Day was. So what is the tradition of Boxing Day? Well, it originated in Great Britain, and it is um, where the, the queen would give out presents to people. Um, in, in Europe, it was the exact same day as St. Stephen's Day, who was the original martyr, and it was uh, a holiday, a religious day. Um, it uh, you know went back to the Middle Ages, and it was where the uh, Western Christian churches uh, would, uh, during Christmas tide, would give presents to the poor, and so they would distribute them to the poor. Um, I mean, even Oxford uh, Dictionary uh, gives uh, the uh, 1743 is the first time that they have mentioned up the day after Christmas. And traditionally on this day, tradespeople, employees would receive uh, presents with gratitudes uh, from their customers or their employers. And then, of course, the queen would give out presents. Okay, and you mentioned St. Stephen, um, and that uh, he was a martyr. Was he the, the martyr that um, Paul stood by and watched as he was uh, martyred, or am I, do I have the right? Right. Okay. Right, yeah. He's called the, the first martyr, or the proto-martyr, which basically means the first martyr. And, um, yeah, the, the Apostle Paul was uh, going around, I think it was around 36 A.D., and uh, he was uh, accusing the, the Christians and then having them brought out and killed. And 
then, of course, the book of Acts talks about the Apostle Paul doing the same thing in Damascus when the Lord appears to him and he's thrown off his horse and then he's blinded and then he uh, has Ananias lay hands on him and his eyes sight comes back and then Paul goes on to be uh, one of the greatest preachers uh, in the Christian faith. And he was probably the most educated among all the early church fathers. Uh, he was trained under Gamaliel, who was one of the famous rabbis in Jerusalem. And Paul was also a Roman citizen, so he was uh, politically top of the ladder, uh, uh, educationally top of the ladder. Uh, He was an expert on all the Old Testament scriptures and the Jewish traditions, and so him uh, coming into the faith and writing so many letters in the New Testament uh, is just, uh, uh, it's more than just fishermen. I mean, this is uh, a high-level person, so... Uh, very important uh, is St. Paul's conversion to Christianity. Well, and that is, I think, something that we as as people that may may think, well, I'm not worthy. I, you know, I've done some stuff or whatever. And I think that people can get such hope from the, the story of Paul. And uh, so, and then St. Stephen, the, the proto-martyr. So let's continue on, though, because what I really wanted to talk with you about is Christmas. And you have so many books, uh, but there's one that you've written. There really is a Santa Claus. The History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions. So uh, what should people know about Christmas, Bill Federer? Well, and the first thing is the date. And there actually is a good scriptural uh, argument that December 25th is the date of Jesus' birth. Um, You know, the first couple centuries of Christianity, the focus was on the date of Passover. Uh, Hebrews did not celebrate birthdays. Matter of fact, many people in Middle Eastern countries do not celebrate birthdays. We traveled years ago to uh, Turkey, and my wife was visiting with the lady of the house where we were at, and she asked her birthday. She shuffles into the back room and pulls out a piece of paper, and, oh, this is her birthday, right? Because everybody in the, in the country would turn a year older on January 1st. Same thing in Korea. Our son was in Korea for several years. Everybody in the country turns a year older on January 1st. And so, um, so the Hebrews did not celebrate birthdays, but Greeks did. And as the Greeks began to convert to Christianity, the question was raised, when was Jesus born? And it's a little bit of a detective story. And so the Gospel of Luke 1.5 says, At the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And then it goes on with the story about how the angel appeared to him, told him his wife was going to have uh, John the Baptist and well, there's priestly division of Abijah. What's that? That's the clue. King David divided the Levite priests into 24 priestly divisions, and they each took uh, two weeks a year, uh, six months apart, and they were the priestly division on duty for, for that week. And now, the first group is Jehoi Arab, and we're going to get to that in a minute, why that's important. And then the eighth group is Abijah. And this is listed in First Chronicles 24 in the Bible. And, uh, and so this was confirmed. We got the Dead Sea Scrolls, but then in 1962, the Hebrew University's archaeological department discovered in Caesarea the sacerdotal schedule. It was the 24 uh, priestly courses, and it lists these twice a year, six months apart for a week. But the question is, when do the weeks start? When do we start counting these weeks? Well, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. 
on August 4th, 70 AD, according to the Roman Julian calendar, which corresponds to the Hebrew calendar, the 9th of Av, which is the saddest day, and that was the date that the first temple was destroyed, and now the second temple destroyed, the 9th of Av. Well, the Jerusalem Talmud says that the Levite family that was on duty that week was Jehoi Arab. And since Jehoi Arab is the first family group on duty, first week of August, and Abijah is the eighth, so you got first, second, third, fourth week of August, first, second, third, fourth week of September. So Arab, Abijah's family group was on duty the last week of September. That's when Zachariah would have been in the temple. Why is this important? That's an important week. That's the Day of Atonement, and it's also at the end of the week the Feast of Tabernacles. And so that would explain why people were outside waiting for Zechariah to come out. And, of course, he couldn't speak because he was doubting the angel, and the angel uh, you know, said, you're going to be dumb until the, the baby's born. So he comes in, it says in um, Luke, and it came to pass that while Zechariah executed the priest's office before the Lord in the order of his course, there appeared unto him an angel, the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The angel said to him, fear not, Zechariah, thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. And it says, when the time of Zechariah's service was completed, he returned to his home. At this time, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. So we have uh, the last week of September, as the Eastern Orthodox Church says that September 23rd, September 23rd is the uh, celebration of the conception of John the Baptist. The last week of September, John the Baptist is conceived. And so six months later is when Mary is visited by the angel and visits Elizabeth. So Luke one twenty six in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel uh, Gabriel sent to Nazareth to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, son of David, the virgin's name was Mary. The angel answered and said, Behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she has conceived her son in her old age, and she is in her six months. So now we know that since Zechariah is on duty the last week of September, and six months later would be the last week of March. That would have been when the angel appeared to Mary, and then she visits Elizabeth. Six months after the last week of March is the last week of December. And so um, Susan K. Roll wrote in Toward the Origins of Christmas, St. John Chrysostom counts off the months of Elizabeth's pregnancy and dates Mary's conception to the six months of Elizabeth's then counts off another nine months to arrive at the birth date of Christ. And even in the 4th century, you have uh, a book, Solstices and Equinoxes, and it says, Our Lord was conceived in the month of March, March 25th, which is the day of the passion of the Lord and of his conception. For on that day he was conceived, on that day he suffered. Wow. So Andrew McCowan wrote in uh, a biblical archaeological review online how December 25th, in Christmas, he says it was a common belief back then that the Messiah fulfilled his mission on the anniversary of his, its inception. And so, even Saint Thomas, Saint Augustine, Saint Augustine, 417 A.D. and on the Trinity, he says, "For Jesus is believed to have been conceived on the 25th of March, upon which day he also suffered. For the womb of the Virgin in which he was conceived, where none of mortals was begotten, corresponds to the new grave in which he was buried." wherein never was man laid either before nor since. So Jesus went into the womb on March 25th, and Jesus went into the tomb on March 25th, right? And he came out, um, you know, a baby, a human, a, a son of God, 
Um, but then after the resurrection, he came out um, as uh, the, the first fruits that our Lord risen from the dead. And so, so that's a, so there's a biblical historical timeline that it was actually December 25th. People say, well, wasn't that Saturnalia, the Roman festival? Well, Saturnalia is December 22nd. That's the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, and it's not December 25th. So if you're going to pick a date to overlap something, and no Christian writer prior to the 12th century even suggested that December 25th was chosen to replace Sol Invictus, the date that the Romans worshipped their sun god. Matter of fact, it could have been the other way around. So even in 204 AD, you have St. Hypolitus of Rome. How'd you like to name your Hypolitus? <laughs> um, but he writes this. He says, for the first advent of our Lord in the flesh, when he was born in Bethlehem, was the dis- December 25th, a Wednesday, while Augustus was in his 42nd year. And so he writes that in 204 A.D., saying December 25th. It's not till 274 A.D. that Roman Emperor Aurelian institutes Sol Invictus, uh-huh. which is the date to celebrate um, you know, the, the birth of the sun god. And so it could have been that it was the Romans picking December 25th to try to wipe out this Christian date. You think that that could be um, Bill Fetter. I'm talking with Bill Fetter. He is the creator of American Minute and check out his books and all that he has. That website is AmericanMinute.com. The show comes to you because a lot of great sponsors and do I do want to say thank you to Laramie Energy and Karis Oil and Gas for their goal sponsorship of the show because affordable, reliable, efficient and abundant energy fuels our hopes and dreams and powers our prosperity. And uh, also, Hooters Restaurants, we're, we're going to be starting my sixth year as a solo broadcaster. And Hooters Restaurants has been a sponsor of the show since before then. And they have five locations, Loveland, Aurora, Lone Tree, Westminster, and Colorado Springs. They have great lunch specials Monday through Friday. And it's a great place to get together with friends to watch all of the sporting events. And it's also how I got to know them. It's a story about freedom and free markets and capitalism and how PBIs, those politicians, bureaucrats, and interested parties were really trying to wield way too much power. So you can check all that uh, story out at my website at KimMunson.com. And then I do know all my sponsors personally and the Roger Mangan insurance team. They understand that there are unknowns that can keep you up at night, and that is why the Roger Mangan team can also help with the life insurance and health insurance needs to replace lost income. So call Roger Mangan at 303-795-8855 for a complimentary appointment. Like a good neighbor, Roger Mangan's team is Rosie's doing it. So is Yvonne. Same with Lori. Michelle's been at it since February of last year. Jody started the year before that, and guess what? They're all saving by doing so. What's that? Oh, the doing part? They're using the Drive Safe and Save app from State Farm. Then they're saving up to 30% and more on their auto insurance. How about you? Are you ready to get at it and save? Call Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance at 303-795-8855. Don't delay. Call Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance at 303-795-8855 today. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Munson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, kimmunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N. 
com. Welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. I did want to mention, uh, take a gander at our uh, documentary, A Climate Conversation. Uh, This is the brainchild of geophysicist Walt Johnson, he and his wife Ramey, put their own money into this, took money out of their retirement plan to fund this because they want to have an honest conversation about the climate. And you can watch it for free by going to aclimateconversation.com, aclimateconversation.com. We are pre-recording these shows for this week, very special shows, very special guests. And on the line with me is Bill Federer. He is the creator of the American Minute. Many times you hear that uh, in between my hour one and hour two. Uh, just a wealth of knowledge. But uh, we were talking about December 25th, why that's Christmas. And Bill, you said there was one more thing that you wanted to mention about that. Oh, just that some say, well, it couldn't have been December 25th because the sheep were in the fields and, you know, the babies were being born. It's like, well, actually, uh, first of all, the climate in Jerusalem is pretty moderate, and Bethlehem is six miles from Jerusalem. It gets down to around 42 in the wintertime in December in Jerusalem, and then a high of close to 60. So it's like Flagstaff, Arizona. It it doesn't get icy. It doesn't get cold. And lo and behold, uh, sheep give birth to their lambs as early as December. So I went online just to double check, and so there's a Carroll County, Maryland, Westminster, Maryland farm, and the title of the article is, Why Are Lambs Born During the Winter? And it says there's less parasites, and then they're in the barn rather than out in the field, and it's safer. And then I went to a U.K. website, War Horse Valley Country Farm Park, and it says lambs are born around 145 days or about 4.5 months after the ewe falls pregnant. Lambings can start as early as December and go on as late as June. So there's nothing wrong with uh, baby lambs being born in December. Um, well, whatever date he was, the most important thing is that uh, the Son of God became man. And Isaiah seven fourteen says, The virgin himself conceived and bear a child, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Luke says that it came to pass in those days there went out from a degree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed and so in other words this was a government wanting to track everybody a tax enrollment <laughs> and uh, something about globalist rulers one of I mean if he could if he could have access to 5G and cell phones and facial recognition software and, and apps that can, can control uh, where you're spending your money and, and I bet he would have been tempted to use that you think so um, mm-hmm I think so. so. And and it says, and all went to be taxed, everyone to his own town. And Joseph went up to Galilee, to the city of Nazareth, and to Judea, the city of David, is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, who was great with child. Suddenly there was uh, angels, multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God. And the angels sang glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace, good will for men. And then you have the story of the wise men from the east coming. And this is interesting. So east of 
Israel is Persia, which used to be Babylon, and they had Daniel. And so the uh, book of Daniel um, says that the king had promoted Daniel to be the head of the wise men, and the word in Persian for wise men is magi, where you get the word magician, because, um, and so this is uh, Daniel chapter 5. The queen said, Oh, King Belshazzar, there is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, whom Nebuchadnezzar thy father made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, uh, soothsayers. His name is Daniel. And then we see that uh, Daniel had read the prophecy that Jeremiah said that the Israelites or the Jews would be captive in Babylon for 70 years. And Daniel set himself to pray for this prophecy to be fulfilled. So he's looking, we, we got on record, he, he's looking at prophecies of when the Messiah would come. Well, Daniel, the head of the, the chief of the Magi, magicians, the wise men, supposedly started a school of the wise men in Babylon, and they're doing what? They're studying prophecies, and they're studying stars, and there's a, a great video, it's called The Bethlehem Star, and it's you know, the smarter than I am, because it's it basically this computer program that you can pick any date in history and see where the constellations of the stars were, and it, like, rotates the, the stars. And it goes back to, you know, around 1 B.C., and it shows that the, the star that represents the king is is uh, beneath the, the, the constellation that represents Virgo or the Virgin. It's fascinating, but so... This would have, excuse me, these would have been the Magi, the wise men coming from the east. And um, uh, and then one other interesting trivia, uh, you had the dating of calendars would be to the reign of a king. So Old Testament, you know, in the 10th year of the reign of King Hezekiah, or the 14th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So you would date things according to the most memorable person that was alive at the time, the king. And so by the 5th century, A.D., you have a Christian Roman Empire, but they're still dating things from a previous emperor named Diocletian. And you had this monk named Dionysus Exegus, and again, the Roman Empire is Christian by now, Justinian is the emperor. But this monk is copying records. And dating stuff to Anno Diocletiani um, in the year of Diocletian. And he asked himself, why are we dating stuff to this pagan Roman emperor, Diocletian, who killed Christians? And so he counts back as best as he can to the birth of Jesus. And in the margin, he writes Anno Domini in the year of our Lord's reign. And as the centuries go on, you know, the, the Muslims conquered Egypt, pulled back the ships of papyrus. There's a paper shortage in Europe. Fewer people write. The only ones they can write are the monks in the monasteries transcribing documents. And by, basically for a thousand years, they were the educated people, and they adopt this dating system. And then after that, you have the Renaissance, and then you have the, the age of exploration, and the Spanish and Dutch and uh, Portuguese are going around the world, and then you have the age of colonization and the British, and they're taking these their uh, British culture and their their dating system with them around the world. And so it, it turns out that the dating system was adopted by the entire planet. So to this day, everything on planet Earth is dated back to Anno Domini in the year of our Lord's reign. Wow. 
And um, and so is a interesting quote from Clarence Mannion. He was the dean of the Notre Dame Law School, and President Eisenhower put him on staff. He wrote a book, He's a Piece, that sold millions of copies. And Clarence Mannion writes this beautiful short quote. He says, a long march of measured time suddenly stopped and did an about face and marched in another direction to a different drum straight through the ensuing centuries of Christ and Christendom. B.C., before Christ, and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, mark each one of the only reliable milestones along the path of world history. The end of the first time, time chain and the beginning of the second came together on the night that Christ was born in Bethlehem. The first Christmas day thus stands as the great divide for the timing and recording of all people, things, and events that have lived or taken place on this earth. The one place on the long, long trail of time where the magnetic needle of history stands vertical and points up. So every Ooh, single thing interesting. that's dated on planet Earth is dated to what? The birth of Christ. But, right? Bill, I've seen different headlines that there are those that are wanting to change that have you seen any of that well yeah they want to say bce before common era and ce common era it's like okay when did it change from before common era to common era the birth of christ <laughs> they okay. can't get away from it <laughs> right and um so um anyway so so back to the the story so uh, jesus is born and he knew his mission was to die on the cross he said in Mark that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The gospel message is that God is a just God, and he cannot help it, which means he has to judge every sin. Uh, because if he does not judge a sin, by default, his silence will be giving consent to the sin. Like in a wedding ceremony, if you are silent, when they say the wedding vows, you are, your silence is giving consent to the wedding vows. It's called the rule of tacit admission. T-A-C-I-T. Okay. And it, it's in, uh, you know, real estate law. If somebody's squatting on your property and you're not charging them rent or ticking them off and you're silent and the judge says, well, you knew they were there and you didn't do anything, your silence was giving consent. They gave title to your property through adverse possession just by you being silent. And in trademark law, somebody's using your trademark and you know about it and you're silent not trying to defend it. The judge says, well, you knew about it. You didn't try to defend it. It stands. They get to use your trademark. It's in our Constitution, Article 1, Section 7. Congress puts a bill on the president's desk. He has 10 days to do something with it. But if he, if he is silent and does nothing, it goes into effect as law as if he had signed it. So our Constitution says if he's silent, it's the same as him signing it. And so that concept, rule of tacit admission, silence equals consent. If there are sins and God is silent and not judging the sin, by default, he'd be giving consent to the sin. And if God gives consent to, to one sin one time, he denies his just nature. He denies himself. He ungods himself, he, and he cannot deny himself. And so um, that's where the gospel message comes in, that he provides his son to take the judgment for the sin. So in mathematical equations, you have constants and variables. The constant in the equation of redemption is God is just, was, is, and forever will be just. He can't change that. The variable is who takes the judgment, you or uh -huh. substitute. Okay. <laughs> and so Jesus is the substitute, and he took the wrath of God that we deserve to put himself on the cross, and therefore God is just that he judges every sin, but he's, he's loving that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. So the lamb is God's way to love you without having to judge you.
Boy, this is so important to understand that. Uh, a just God, but so it's going to be who's going to take that on. And then, of course, celebrating Christmas. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing is all you have to do is accept that Jesus is the Son of God, was born as a baby, died on a cross, and was resurrected to life, and that's it. It's simple, but sometimes it seems complicated. I'm talking with Bill Fetter. He is the creator of the American Minute. And uh, I did want to mention the USMC Memorial Foundation. Uh, the memorial is located out at Six and Colfax. And as we are seeing this uh, renaming and taking down of our monuments and our memorials, now more than ever, helping to raise the money to remodel this um, memorial is so important. Paula Sarles is the president of the foundation. She and her team are working diligently, and it's a special place for Paula. She is a, a Marine veteran. She's a Gold Star wife, and uh, she is uh, a veteran of the uh, Vietnam era uh, as well. And so you can help them by going to usmcmemorialfoundation.org. That's usmcmemorialfoundation.org. And uh, I know each and every one of my sponsors personally and highly recommend them. And one of them is Karen Levine. There are always opportunities in changing markets, and the metro real estate market is no exception. That is why you need to work with seasoned REMAX Alliance realtor Karen Levine when you buy your home, sell your home, consider the opportunities of a new build, or explore investment properties. Rising interest rates are spurring creativity, innovation, and opportunity in the real estate and mortgage markets. Kim Munson highly recommends award-winning REMAX realtor Karen Levine. Call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516 for answers to all your real estate questions. That's 303-877-7516. If you are 62 or older, a reverse mortgage could be a great tool regarding retirement and estate planning. It is essential to understand the process. Lauren Levy with Polygon Financial Group has nearly 20 years in the mortgage industry and has the experience to answer your questions. Lauren understands that each financial transaction is personal. If you'd like to explore your options on a reverse mortgage, remodel your home, buy a rental property, or move, call Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Licensed in 49 states, Kim Monson highly recommends Lauren Levy for all your mortgage needs. Call Lauren at 303-880-8881. Welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. And I uh, want to say thank you to Laramie Energy and Karis Oil & Gas for their goal sponsorship of the show. Affordable, reliable, efficient, and abundant energy fuels our hopes and dreams and powers our prosperity. Uh, talking with Bill Fetter, and he is the creator of the American Minute, has written many, many books. But uh, wanted to ask you about there really is a Santa Claus. Uh, so what should people know about that, the history of St. Nicholas? Right. So I wrote a book uh, on that, and uh, it is fascinating. So uh, the first three centuries of Christianity— there are 10 major persecutions. Uh, 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. The 12th one, John, was thrown in a pot of oil but survived. 
And so Christians were meeting in catacombs for church. I went to school in Rome and college. We, you know, went to the catacombs where you'd go to like some, you know, hillside outside of Vatican City and you're walking down some little road and you see this, you know, a little iron gate to the side. It almost looks like a drainage ditch, you know, but the tour guide unlocks it and creaks open. It's a little bit rusty. And you have to bend down. It's only like, you know, four feet high. You scooch back for like, you know, 20 yards and you finally get into an opening that's about you know maybe 20 foot square with little passageways going off in different directions and it's like this was the christian experience for three centuries and every single time you met for church you were risking your life and then you were sometimes raided arrested and brought before the coliseum thrown to the lions nero set rome on fire blamed the christians because he wanted to clear the poor area for a building project and, <laughs> And so uh, you have the, the last persecution was Galerius, um, excuse me, Diocletian. And Diocletian lost some battles with Persia and asked his generals why. And they said, well, you've neglected having the Roman army worship the Roman gods. And so Diocletian says, okay, get back to it. And all the Christians were purged from the military because the previous emperor, who was named Galenius, he was a little bit tolerant. And so now once all the Christians were out of the military, Diocletian decided to use the military to force the entire Roman Empire to returning to worshiping the Roman gods. And he went province by province, tearing down churches, arresting the pastors, confiscating the scriptures, cutting out their tongues, boiling them alive. <laughs> and it was terrible. He literally uh, erected a monument to the extermination of Christianity. During this time is when Nicholas was born. So Nicholas was in Asia Minor to Adits, Turkey, and he is the most popular Greek Orthodox saint. He is to the Greek Orthodox what St. Peter is to Roman Catholics. There are more Greek Orthodox churches named after Nicholas than anybody else. Actually, more Greek young men are named Nick or Nicholas than any other name. And um, the story is that he grew up in a town of Patara, Asia Minor, and his parents died, left him a lot of money as a young man. And a movement was sweeping through Christianity at the time called Pietism. It was the beginning of the monasticism movement where they'd go to monasteries. And pietism was, if you really became a Christian, you should give away your money and live in a cave as a hermit and enjoy your personal relationship with Jesus or join a monastery, even take vows of silence, and you'll never hear from me again, but you'll have this personal relationship with Jesus. And, and so he decides he's, he's going to give away all his money, but he doesn't want to get the credit for it. And so he would go into town at nighttime and throw money in the window of poor people and then slip away really fast. And supposedly the money would land in a shoe or a stocking that was drying by the fireplace. And one story became popular. And there's a, literally dozens of murals and painting and stained glass windows of this. Nicholas is, is on his tippy toes throwing money in the window. But inside, there's a man and his three daughters. So the story is that a merchant had gone bankrupt in this town. And the creditors were going to come and take not only his, his house and lands, but his children, his daughters. And he knew if they were taken, they'd probably, you know, end up being sex trafficked or whatever. And so the father had an idea. He thought if he could hurry up and marry his daughters off, the creditors couldn't take them. Unfortunately, he did not have money for a dowry, which was needed in that area of the world for a legally recognized wedding. Nicholas, here's the problem. Throw some money in the window for the first daughter. She gets married. Uh, big buzz, talk of the town, throws money in for the second daughter. She has a dowry. She gets married. By the third daughter's turn, the dad's expecting it. He runs outside, catches Nicholas. And Nicholas makes the father promise not to tell where the money came from because he wanted the credit to go to God and not to him. 
This is the origin of the tradition of secret gift giving and midnight visits from St. Nicholas, stopping by the fireplace on December 6th, uh, 343 A.D. is when he died. And so they called it December 6th, St. Nicholas Day. And um, and so he became the, the patron saint of pawnbrokers. And you're like, what? <laughs> um, so pictures of St. Nicholas, he's holding three bags of gold or three gold balls to represent those three bags of money he threw in the window of that merchant. And so pawnbrokers will hang three gold balls outside of their shop to represent those three bags of gold that Nicholas threw in the window. And pawnbrokers say, well, we're helping people out in their time of financial need, just as Nicholas helped people out in their time of financial need. It's like, yeah, it's a little bit of a stretch, but whatever. <laughs> so uh, once Nicholas gave away all his money, he decides he's going to join a monastery in Jerusalem called the Mount Zion Monastery. And right before he takes his vows to be silent the rest of his life, uh, the Lord tells him somehow not to hide his light under a bushel. So he goes back to Asia Minor, gets off the boat in a big town called Myra. It's still there today. It's called Demre, Turkey. And unbeknownst to him, the bishop had died. The church leaders could not decide who the next bishop was going to be. One has a dream that the first person in the door the next day would be named Nicholas. He was to be their bishop. Nicholas's habit was to be the first one in church. Uh, he, he would fast all night and then would not eat until after communion. And so that's when he would break the fast. It was a became a common habit, and so the term got called break fast or breakfast. Huh. And, um, and so he walks in the door. They ask his name. He says, Nicholas, they said, you're supposed to be the bishop. He was not too happy because the Roman emperor Diocletian was arresting bishops and killing them. Oh. So it was sort of like, you be the bishop. No, no, no. I insist. No, no, really. You be the bishop, right? And, uh, and sure enough, he was arrested. He was put in jail. And while he was wasting away in jail, the emperor Diocletian is struck with an intestinal disease so painful he has to abdicate the throne on May 1st, 305 AD. And this was sort of humorous because by this time, Roman emperors were declaring themselves a god with a little g sprinkling gold dust in their hair, demanding their image be worshipped. So this was sort of like a god resigning. Um, the next emperor is, emperor is Galerius. He continues the persecution. He's struck with an intestinal disease, dies in 311 A.D. Now there's no emperor. Four generals fight it out. Comes down to two, Constantine and Maxentius. Constantine is a general in York, Britain. Britain had been a Roman colony since Julius Caesar, 55 B.C. And so Constantine marches toward Rome, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, the day before the battle, he sees the sign of Christ in the sky, puts it on all the shields and symbols, he wins. The sign of Christ is the first two Greek letters for the name Christ. So the Hebrew word is Messiah, which means the anointed one. Translated into Greek, it's Christ. And the, the K-sounding letters, written, the Greek tried as an X, it's called a Chi. And the Ur-sounding letters, called Rho, and it's written as a big P. And so these... Uh, the sign is the X and a P. So the Constantine had this X and a P put on all the shields and symbols. He wins. Over the centuries, it got sh shortened just to the X. It was called the Chi or the Christ's Cross, as we pronounce it today, crisscross. So when you say crisscross, that means Christ's Cross, and it's the Greek letter Chi. That's where you get Xmas. Interesting. So X hyphen M-A-S is not the X cross and out Christ. It's the Greek letter Chi that stood for Christ. It's the Christ's Cross. And it became part of, a, of an oath. So when you just swear to tell the truth, cross my heart. Well, what's the cross all about? That's the Christ cross, right? You're swearing before Christ. You're going to keep your word. And then it came down as a written oath. 
so you would sign a document at the Christ cross that you're going to keep your word. And today that's called signing at the X. And then they, at the bottom of the Valentine, they would put the X, showing your sincerity before Christ. You're going to keep your promise to this person. And the O was a symbolize a kiss, which shows sincerity. So that's your X's and O's. Um, anyway, back to Constantine. He wins the Battle, Battle of the Milvian Bridge, 312 AD, 313 AD. He issues the Edict of Milan, stopping the persecution of Christians. Nicholas is now let out of jail, and he preaches against paganism. So nearby is the Temple to Diana in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, twice as big as the Parthenon, 127 huge pillars and temple prostitutes. It was the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean, wow. and uh, Apostle Paul preached against Diana worship. Greater Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians, you know, Acts 19. And so Nicholas preaches against it so much that they tear the temple to Diana down. So he would have been sort of a fire and brimstone type preacher today. And he preached against the Olympics. Why? Because they were running them naked. They were naked races and naked wrestling. The word gym for gymnasium. Gym means naked in Greek. <laughs> and you've got these guys, you know, in their bathhouses. And, and he preaches against it. They eventually shut the Olympics down. And then he preached against exposure of unwanted infants. So Rome was founded, the legend is, by Romulus and Remus, who were two boys abandoned in the woods and nursed by a wolf. And they grew up and founded Rome. Well, who abandons babies in the woods? The Romans. The Romans had a tradition that the mother would bear the child laid at the father's feet. If the father thought the kid looked healthy and they could afford it, he would pick it up. If he did not pick it up, the mother would have to put the baby in a basket, set it out in the woods, give her tearful goodbyes. And, um, and as the Christianity grew and Christians were adopting babies, these mothers would put the baby in a basket and lay it at the door of a Christian and knock on the door. And the couple, old, you know, Christian couple open the door, see the baby in the basket, raise it. And, and so Nicholas preached against exposure of unwanted infants. If he'd have been alive today, he'd have been a pro-life preacher. And then you have the Arian heresy. So a Bishop Arius said that Jesus was less than God. He was a created being, right to catch his song. The Visigoths who were coming into Rome convert to Arianism. And it not only splits the church, it's splitting the Roman Empire because Constantine made Christianity the de facto religion. Constantine orders all the bishops to Nicaea pays for them. They, they go there, they settle it with the Nicene Creed, and the tradition is that Nicholas slapped Arius across the face at the council for starting the Arian heresy. So Jolly will say, Nick had a little temper. You better watch out if he's coming to town. And um, the Greeks have other stories about how he prayed the sea became calm so the sailors could come back. Another time they were starving. He talked sailors into unloading grain to feed his people, promised that God would bless him, and they said later that the grain had multiplied. And then yeah, a governor uh, was corrupt and going to have some soldiers executed to cover up his corruption. Nicholas hears about it, breaks through the crowd, grabs the sword out of the executioner's hand, throws it down in front of everybody by the Holy Spirit, tells all the corrupt stuff the governor was doing, and he repents. And so he, he had this... Uh, tradition. So he dies on December 6, 343 A.D., and uh, maybe in the next uh, segment we can talk about how he turns into our modern-day Santa Claus. That sounds like a great plan. And just a point, uh, now, I, I, now I can't remember which creed it is exactly, if it's the Apostles' Creed, but the fact that the words are begotten, not made, that is a huge statement, isn't it? And be, as you're talking about this 
this uh, heresy of he's saying he was created. There's a difference between created and begotten, and uh, I think that's important to make that distinction, Bill. Yeah, so so I, I cannot separate you from your words. You're, you're quiet. Uh, you're there, but I know nothing about you. It's your words that make you known to me. And, and you, you are expressing yourself in your word. Well, Jesus is the word made flesh. So he's God sending his word down. Jesus made flesh and said, this is what God's like. He's a spirit, so you really can't see him. But here I am in the flesh, and I'm showing you. He wants to love. He wants to forgive. He, right? He's just, so he has to judge. So I'm going to give myself to pay for the, the, your sins. But, um, but anyway, you can't separate the son from the father any more than I can separate you from your words. Oh, that's really important and good to know at this Christmas season. I'm talking with Bill Federer, and he is the creator of the American Minute. We're talking about Christmas and St. Nicholas, and well, let's talk about Santa Claus when we come back. And we get to do that because of our sponsors, like uh, John Boson with Boson Law. Boson Law fights for clients who've been injured or family members who have lost a loved one due to the careless, reckless, or wrongful conduct of others. Whether injured in a car accident, suffered an injury due to a product or bad pharmaceutical drug, or need help fighting for medical care and benefits following an accident at work, don't go it alone and uninformed. Boson Law is the law firm you need in your corner. Time is of the essence with any personal injury claim. Call 303-999-9999 to schedule your complimentary consultation. That number again is 303-999-9999. Call now. All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Franktown Firearms Training Programs have something for every age and skill level in the friendliest gun range in town. With highly skilled men and women instructors, you're sure to find the right instructor for your needs. Franktown's 10-lane, 30-yard shooting range provides the right place to train where you feel confident and ready to learn. Whether you're a beginner or a seasoned veteran, Franktown Firearms will meet your needs. Training runs from simple gun safety and care to obtain your concealed carry permit or honing your skills with advanced tactical moving and shooting. The Special Forces Green Beret trainer has you covered. And women, you won't want to miss Ladies' Night the first Friday of each month where you can bond and train together. Gift certificates for training are available or for anything in their fully stocked store. And Franktown is a faster Colorado certified training site. Just go to klzradio.com slash franktown to get shooting today. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You can email me at Kim at Kim Munson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force. Force versus freedom is something's a good idea. You should not have to force people to do it. And uh, did want to mention the Center for American Values, located in Pueblo, Colorado. And it is nonpartisan. It's nonpolitical. It's focused 
based on these values of uh, honor, integrity, and patriotism, and to instill those in ourselves, teach those to our children, and they have great educational programs to do that, and then also to honor our Medal of Honor recipients with their portraits of valor. So you can get more information about all that by going to AmericanValueCenter.org. That's AmericanValueCenter.org. We are pre-recording these shows uh, for the week between Christmas and New Year's, and uh, special guests, special subjects, and we're talking with Bill Federer, and he is the creator of the American Minute, and he's written many books. You can find everything at AmericanMinute.com. We're talking about Christmas, St. Nicholas. How did we get Santa Claus, Bill Federer? Well, uh, thank you, Kim. This is fun. So uh, Nicholas dies December 6, 343 A.D., and he is, again, the most popular Greek Orthodox saint. So Emperor Justinian, who's a Christian Roman emperor, and he's the one who built the Hagia Sophia, which was the largest church in the world for a millennium um, in, in Constantinople. He builds a church in Myra, today that's Demre, Turkey, and named it after Nicholas. And um, by the way, uh, during this time, there's a split between the East and the West. So the Eastern Orthodox Christians celebrate Epiphany, January 6th, when three wise men visited, and Jesus is Epiphany. He's revealed to the world. The word Epiphany means revealed to the world. Whereas Western Europe celebrates December 25th, Christmas, the birthday of Jesus, and they could not decide which day was holier. So at the Council of Tours in 567 A.D., they decide to make all 12 days from December 25th to January 6th, the 12 days of Christmas. So the 12 days of Christmas are not the 12 days leading up to Christmas. They're the 12 days between December 25th and January 6th. They call them holy days, and over the centuries, holy days got pronounced holiday. Uh-huh. So when they say, don't say Merry Christmas, just say Happy Holidays. Well, holiday means holy day, and what are the holy days? But the 12 days of Christmas, so they can't get away from it. I like so, it. And then 988 A.D., on the eastern side, you have Vladimir the Great, and he adopts the Greek Orthodox faith, and he, uh, in 988 A.D., adopts Nicholas as the patron saint of Russia. So that's why you have so many churches and czars named Nicholas in Russia. And then the Muslims invade. And so Muhammad dies in 632 A.D., and uh, his followers robbed caravans. He gets a verse from Allah saying, Allah has given you the slave girls as your booty, and he gets a fifth of the booty. And then they're on the Mediterranean, and they robbed cities and coastlines. And they, in 846 A.D., they raided Rome, and 11,000 Muslim warriors trashed the church of the Basilica of St. Peter's, and they trashed the bones of St. Peter. Well, now we're in the year 1087 A.D., and the Muslim Turks are coming into what is today Turkey. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out. Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, uh, uh, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I always got to concentrate on this. Anyway, uh, they're heading toward Myra, Demre, and they decide to move the boat, or Christians move the boat to St. Nicholas over to Italy for protection. And there's a little town on the west eastern side of Italy. It's called the Adriatic Sea. The town's called Bari, B-A-R-I, and they build a cathedral, and it's his remainder there to this day, and the Pope Urban II dedicates the church, and the same Pope Urban II goes to the Consul of Claremont, 1095 A.D., and begs these European kings to send help to the Greeks. They do. It is called the First Crusade. And Richard Lionheart led the Third Crusade. St. Louis led the Seventh and Eighth Crusades. The Crusades stopped. Uh, but the Islamists continue their crusades for 14 centuries, still going on today. 
But uh, once St. Nicholas's traditions are in Italy, the gift giving caught on. So much so that St. Francis of Assisi, sort of in protest, creates the nativity scene in 1223 AD. Uh, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, donkeys in the manger. It's like, all oh, the gift giving sign, we need to get back to the reason for the season. Jesus was born in the manger. And then uh, you have Germany, and Martin Luther starts the Reformation in 1517. And by this time, there is a saint's day for every day of the year. Churches are filled full of relics and statues and sepulchers and side altars, and Luther considers this all a distraction, so he ends the saint's days in Protestant countries, including the popular St. Nicholas Day. But the Germans like the gift-giving, so Martin Luther moves all the gift-giving to December 25th and says all gifts come from the Christ child. And the German pronunciation of Christ child is Chris Kindle. And Kindle means child, like kindergarten, kinder care, Chris means Christ. And over the years, Chris Kindle got pronounced Chris Kringle. So Chris Kringle is really Chris Kindle, which means Christ child. And, uh, and then you have Martin Luther puts Christmas lights in the Christmas tree. What's this? So just like St. Patrick evangelized Ireland, used the three-leaf clover to teach the Trinity, St. Boniface comes from Britain in uh, the year 722 A.D., and he goes through the forest, and he chops down Thor's tree. So these Germans worship Thor. That's where you get Thor's Day. Uh, the Quakers wouldn't say Thor's Day. So <laughs> they called it Fifth Day because uh, it was the pagan god. Uh, but uh, Boniface chops down Thor's tree, and then he points at a little evergreen tree and says, let this be the tree of the Christ child. It points toward heaven. Its leaves are evergreen, like everlasting life, and it's sort of in the shape of a triangle, like the Trinity. And so the Christmas tree, the evergreen, is symbolic of Germans converting to Christianity, the same way that three-leaf clover is symbolic of the Irish converting to Christianity. Well, Martin Luther's coming home one night, sees the stars twinkling, puts candles in the branches, and he tells his child, this is like the sky above Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth. He could have seen candles in the home of Jews who were celebrating Hanukkah for, you know, a thousand-plus years of England. And this is where it gets interesting. Henry VIII brings the Reformation, but not because he had a spiritual experience like Martin Luther. He just wanted another wife. He eventually had six wives. Uh, and he brings back an old Roman holiday. It used to be a Roman colony since 55 B.C., Julius Caesar. And the Romans had Saturn, Saturnalia, and at the end of the year. He was their god of feasting and plenty and merriment. If you saw the Christmas Carol with Charles Dickens, there's the spirit of Christmas present, mm -hmm. and he's this big guy with robes, Aretha's his hair, gobbler line, the happy party guy, and you're asking yourself, who is this guy? He sort of looks like Santa, but he sort of looks like some Roman god. Well, that's who he was, he was Saturn. But they Christianized him and called him Father Christmas. They couldn't call him Saint Nicholas because saints were outlawed because of the Reformation. But during Henry VIII's time, Christmas became a party time, carousing, drinking, wassailing, where you drink some spiced ale and throw the rest of it on some apple tree for a nice harvest. And it became so much of a party time, it's like a Mardi Gras. People forget Mardi Gras used to be a religious day. It was the day before Lent, when you would fast 40 days before Easter and the Resurrection. Now it's a new party in New Orleans. That's sort of what happened with Christmas in England under Henry VIII. So the Puritans come along, and they outlaw Christmas. Captain uh, <laughs> after the Puritan leader said, Can you and your conscience think that our Holy Savior is honored by bad mirth, long eating, hard drinking, lewd gaming, you know, fit for a Saturn or a Bacchus? And, he says, can our Holy Savior be honored by this hellish stuff? The Puritans were so strict, they tore down Shakespeare's theater. They thought it was uh, dens of iniquity, taking God's name in vain. And, and so the Puritans settled in New England, and they had a five-shilling fine for anybody caught celebrating Christmas. And then the Dutch and English, and uh, the, the Anglicans and the French and the Germans came to America, and they loved Christmas. And this is where it gets interesting. So the Dutch settled New Amsterdam, which became New York. So... 
the Dutch pronunciation of Saint Nicholas is Saint Nicholas or Santa Claus. So when you say Santa Claus, you are saying the Dutch pronunciation of Saint Nicholas. And just like the Catholics have the saying, Saint Peter's at the gate to heaven, the Dutch do a take on the book of Revelation where Jesus will return at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead riding a white horse. Saints will come back with him riding white horses. And Saint Nicholas is a saint, so he'll be one of those on the horses. But since he's so special to the Dutch, he comes back once a year for a little mini judgment. A little oh check up on the gosh. kids. He was on the right track. She was naughty. She was nice. So to this day in Holland, they have Saint Nicholas riding a white horse dressed as a bishop for judgment day. He's got the books. Little kids are looking at it. Over the years, the Lamb's Book of Life and Book of Works turns into the Book of the Naughty and the Nice. The angels turn into elves. Um, in Norway, they didn't have horses. He's riding a reindeer. Saints come from heaven, the celestial city that turns into, you know, the North Pole. Uh, and so what started as the Christian theme now sort of gets off. And in New York, you have Washington Irving, and he says, St. Nicholas visits us once a year, but he describes him not dressed as a bishop, but a Dutch outfit of uh-huh. long trunk holes, leather belt boots, and a stocking hat. And okay. then you have Clement Moore, writes a visit from who? St. Nicholas, so not for his wealthy pastor. I think he's that he's about to talk to him by the chimney with Carrie and hope that St. Nicholas would soon be there. But now he's a little chump. Oh. Uh, like Club Old Elf. And then you have um, Coca-Cola, and they're the ones that uh, have had Sun Blom, and he worked in the Quaker Oaks Man, Antimima Syrup, and he does 30 years of uh, oh the pictures. But the- it started with the real guy in the 4th century who was very generous and we remember. Very good. Bill Fetter, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And stay tuned for our number two. commentators, hosts, their guests, and callers. They are not necessarily the views and opinions of Crawford Broadcasting or KLZ Management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station. It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important stories. That seems to me like government is establishing a religion. The latest in politics and world affairs. If you give people rights, women's rights, gay rights, whatever, there can't be equal rights if there are special rights. Today's current opinions and ideas. Surveys show that people still really prefer freedom over government force. Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation. And welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at Kim Munson dot com as well. I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for listening. You're each treasured. You're valued. You have purpose. And today, strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. My friends, we were made for this moment. And the show comes to you because of great sponsors. And one of those, or two of those great sponsors, is Laramie Energy and Karis Oil and Gas. Uh, I thank them for their goal sponsorship of the show. I also want to say thank you to the Harris family for their goal sponsorship of the show and the National Shooting Sports Foundation also for their uh, sponsorship of the show. Greatly appreciate each and every one of these entities because we are 
truly an independent voice searching for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. Uh, This week of Christmas, we are uh, pre-recording the shows with very special guests and very interesting subjects. And I have on the line with me 95-year-old Colonel Bill Rutledge, retired United States Air Force. He's traveled the world. He has this great intellectual curiosity about just about everything, life, people. But he mentioned that it might be good to do a show about the uh, Battle of New Orleans. And we're actually going to do two shows. Uh, This one that's broadcasting on the 26th, and then we're going to be uh, doing one for the first part of January as well regarding the Battle of New Orleans. So, Colonel Rutledge, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kim. So set this up for us, because I remember there was a song, The Battle of New Orleans, uh, and I knew the song, but I don't know much more about this battle, but it's pretty important. Well, to really appreciate the Battle of New Orleans, we have to go back earlier in the century to 1803. Um, At that time, there had been... Napoleon had been... Uh, at war with most of Western Europe and certainly with the British for almost a decade. And uh, it was interesting because Jefferson was president, and Jefferson recognized the strategic value of New Orleans. So he got a good friend of his, James Madison, who was later to become president on his own and later secretary of state. And he asked James Madison to go to Paris and approach Napoleon about the possibility of buying New Orleans in the immediate vicinity uh, so that we could have the river route opened for our people who had moved west to the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, so he went uh, there and he tried to negotiate and it turned out that Napoleon was more enthused than they had anticipated. What he wanted was money. He needed money to continue his battles in Europe. So the negotiations came down to not just New Orleans, but to expand to the area which we came to know as the Louisiana Purchase. So Madison took the initiative to continue the negotiations And although he didn't have the authority to obligate money at the time, not to the extent that Napoleon wanted, but Napoleon said, I needed $13 million. Well, Madison had made preliminary contacts with bankers in the Netherlands and also in London so that he was in a position to make a verbal commitment to Napoleon. And eventually, in 1803, the Louisiana Purchase was executed. Uh, the key and why this was so important is in when this happened, then this opened the door for the British to sort of speculate maybe we can regain control and uh, control a great deal of America and the North American continent if we could do this. These were contemplated before we got involved in the War of 1812. Now, the War in 1812 is key to three big things. First of all, why did we get in a war? And secondarily, the role of Andrew Jackson. And third, 
the Battle of New Orleans, how it started, how it ended, and how it was such a game-breaker for everything in protecting America uh, up to this very day. So this is sort of the background on it. Now, as to how we got in the war, this this extended, uh, it's been, it had been 30 years after we'd gained our independence, and the British were in a process of having to expand their navy because they were trying to blockade Western Europe so that Napoleon could not receive uh, supplies coming in. So they expanded their navy, and in so doing, they didn't have enough enough sailors, so they started the program of calling impressing, which meant they would stop other nations' ships and go aboard and remove people, sailors, from the ships and claim that these were British citizens and British sailors who had um, left England. Some of them had uh, been in the Royal Navy. Um, but this was all speculation, and they had the power to do it. So this so-called impressing of salesmen, of sailors, continued for at least a decade. And the French did this to us also. But the British, it was more... Um, demanding, and uh, they had a bigger navy. So this was a big source of concern on the part of the Americans. And, of course, all the Americans um, up and down the coast, because those, that's the source of where most of these sailors came from. People in the, over in the Mountain West, and I say Mountain West, we're talking about west of the Appalachians now, east of the Mississippi, and the people in the south, weren't nearly as concerned. However, they became known as the War Hawks. In other words, these were members of the Senate who finally said, well, this is infringing upon Americans' freedom, our Constitution. Um, it makes us look weak, and we're not defending our own land. So they created enough disturbance um, in, in Congress to put pressure on the president to um, consider seriously a war. Now, in 1812, we hardly had any defenses at all. We had very little in the way of ships for our Navy. Um, we didn't have much of an army. We didn't have the concept of a standing Navy and a standing army. We had phased everything back after the American Revolution, feeling we were basically protected by that big ocean between us and Europe, and by Washington's comments about let's not get engaged in any entangling alliances in Europe that could get us involved in war. So there was this sense that we're protected, and yet the aggression by the British Navy, uh, all of this came together to the point that um, President Madison felt that uh, he had to go. And so he, he went ahead and, and signed off on going to war in June of, 19, of 
well. Okay. And let's stop and, right uh, there, um, Colonel Rutledge, and, and we're going to go to break here, uh, okay. continuing the discussion. And this is so fascinating about the Battle of New Orleans. We get to have these discussions because of all of my great sponsors, and one of those is the Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance Team. And Roger's been in business for 47 years, taking care of his family, his clients, giving back to the community. And he can help anybody in Colorado. You can call or text him at 303-795-8855. Like a good neighbor, the Roger Mangan team is there. Rosie's doing it. So is Yvonne. Same with Lori. Michelle's been at it since February of last year. Jody started the year before that. And guess what? They're all saving by doing so. What's that? Oh, the doing part? They're using the Drive Safe and Save app from State Farm. Then they're saving up to 30% and more on their auto insurance. How about you? Are you ready to get at it and save? Call Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance at 303-795-8855. Don't delay. Call Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance at 303-795-8855 today. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Munson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You can email me at Kim at Kim dot com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. And did want to mention the USMC Memorial Foundation and all the work that they are doing to raise the money for the remodel of the Marine Memorial. And my friends, as we are seeing the renaming of, of different things to bases and tearing down of statues, it's important that we remember and honor those that have been willing to give their lives or have given their lives for our liberty. And uh, a great way to honor them is to go to the USMC Memorial org and make a contribution. On the line with me is Colonel Bill Rutledge, retired United States Air Force. We're talking about the Battle of New Orleans. We're going to be doing two shows. On this, we've pre-recorded this for Christmas week, and we realized during our our talk during the break that that we needed to make a clarification that it was actually James Monroe that Thomas Jefferson sent for the Louisiana Purchase instead of James Madison. Correct? Correct. Okay, so we just wanted to make that clarification. I think James Monroe, fascinating character, fascinating person, I should say. My understanding is, is in the portrait of Washington crossing the Delaware, that the young man behind uh, Washington in that boat is James Monroe. James Monroe was the fifth president of the United States. He died on uh, July 4th, a few years after uh, Jefferson and Adams. But I want to know a lot more about him. Well, actually, Monroe, uh, we, we in, in school when we studied history, we always talked about the Monroe Doctrine, and we never talked about much about Monroe as an individual um, in his early life. We didn't know, for example, that Monroe was a 19-year-old lieutenant um, with Washington when he crossed the Delaware when it was frozen with ice and everything and made the attack uh, against the um, 
British forces, which were actually all German mercenaries, at Trenton uh, on Christmas night, 1776, and uh, he was badly wounded. It took him several months to recover, and he continued. He wanted to be a professional soldier, um, but after the war, Jefferson, who became a very close friend of his, um, recommended that he consider politics instead. He said, there's no opportunity for, for you to gain and um, live a professional life in the military, because we don't have any military right now. The war's over, and uh, everything is phased back. So he encouraged him to study law at William & Mary, uh, one under the same professor that Jefferson had studied under. And uh, they became so intimate that when Jefferson became president, he had this confidence in Monroe, and he asked him then to pursue this opportunity to acquire um, New Orleans, not realizing that it was going to open the door for the whole Louisiana Purchase. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So let's continue on then. What's the next thing that our listeners should know? Well, the main thing was that we were ill-prepared to go to war with anybody. Um, and we we're also in a position where, where our own people in our Senate um, were not keeping up with what was going on in Europe. Because in 1812, this was when Napoleon was in this process of spending the winter in Russia and then losing and coming all the way back. And then um, encountering some more of the European countries as well as England, who allied to basically have him abdicate his, from the, his throne and go into isolation on the on the island of Elba, off the coast of Italy. So, when all this transpired, it meant this was happening, and after we'd already declared war on the British, and now what happens is it, it re relieves all this military pressure so that the British now have thousands and thousands of well-trained soldiers and a huge Navy so that they could concentrate on coming back to our hemisphere and regaining what they had lost in the American Revolution and expanding their holdings in Canada. So. This is what Parliament and the British military command sat down and, and thought out. Said, okay, they've declared war on us, but let's see what we can do with our power and how we can gain control and regain a lot that we lost. So the British had a plan. Uh, it was threefold. They were going to come down from Canada into the northern states. They were also going to use their Navy and the Marines to confront our eastern Atlantic coast. And they had a third plan that they kept very covert um, of invasion of the South through New Orleans, because that was the most direct route to gain control of the Mississippi River and all areas on either side and perhaps even to gain control of a great portion of what we'd purchased in the Louisiana Purchase. Now, the British then also conceived 
that they would, after they gained this control, then it, this would sort of continue on up all the way to Canada. So it would more consolidate what they had gained in the French and Indian War, that, or which we know also was called a seven-year war in Europe. So this was a part of their master plan. So in 1813 and 1814, they started executing their plan on America. Well, as they tried to come down from Canada, that was the first leg, um, they came, were coming to the Great Lakes, and they got up to the area of northern New York where they were going to concentrate their forces, in, and then they would come down the Hudson. Well, they got stymied up there because there was a small naval, American naval presence at Lake Champlain, and uh, they stopped the British movement so that the British then fell back um, and moved their forces on back into Canada. But it also meant that they relieved all those soldiers so that they could be used for marine activities along the East Coast and ultimately against New Orleans. So this was the first of the three plans. The second part, they, they were to go in through Chesapeake Bay uh, and then go into Washington, D.C., which they did. So they occupied Washington, and uh, they burned the Capitol building, they burned the White House, they burned many other buildings there. And after their success there, then they went on to Baltimore and they were going to attack and, and conquer Baltimore. Well, that's where uh, they were stopped. Uh, they had the assault on Baltimore, and that's where they, they had the battle at Fort McHenry, and uh, that's when Francis Scott Key was actually aboard a British ship. He'd been captured, and he wrote the Star-Spangled Banner um, after the night in which we had the huge bombardment on the Fort McHenry, um, I had the good luck to go there back in the 50s and visit the fort. And the original, one of the original flags that had been up in 1813 um, was still there. Now, later it was um, reworked with a lot of great seamstress work by a, a large team of American ladies. Um, it was not put back the way it was. It's now protected. Um, but it was interesting to see. And then I subsequently also took my grandson there to visit it. And it's uh, the most impressive place. You know, because this was important because this stopped the frontal attack against the major cities on the East Coast. But they still blockaded all the other ports. Okay. Uh, I'm talking with um, Colonel Bill Rutledge. We're talking about the Battle of New Orleans, uh, Battle and the War of 1812. And I'm learning so much about this, didn't know about it, and it's so important that we know our history. And uh, we do these shows because we have wonderful sponsors, and one of those great sponsors is Lauren Levy. If you are 62 or older, a reverse mortgage could be a great tool regarding retirement and estate planning. It is essential to understand the process. Lauren Levy with Polygon Financial Group has nearly 20 years in the mortgage industry and has the experience to answer your questions. 
Lorne understands that each financial transaction is personal. If you'd like to explore your options on a reverse mortgage, remodel your home, buy a rental property, or move, call Lorne Levy at 303-880-8881. Licensed in 49 states, Kim Monson highly recommends Lorne Levy for all your mortgage needs. Call Lorne at 303-880-8881. All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to do it. And I did want to say thank you to the National Shooting Sports Foundation for their goal sponsorship of the show. And uh, individuals cannot join the National Shooting Sports Foundation. It's for the industry, but they can support the industry by going to the range, buying a new firearm, training, and supporting companies that support the Second Amendment. So I certainly thank them for that. I'm talking with Colonel Bill Rutledge, and we're talking about the uh, War of 1812 and ultimately the Battle of New Orleans. And uh, Colonel Rutledge, you said the British had all of these soldiers, all of the, you know, the ships and the Navy, and they when they weren't uh, fighting Napoleon anymore in Western Europe. So they're like, hey, why don't we go over to America and see if we can regain some of the, the stuff that we lost during their battle for independence? Do I have that right? That's correct. Yes. So what they happens then? Success. Well, they had huge success in 1813. Because, again, they had these people that were now available, and uh, we didn't have any defenses along the eastern coast. So that was working well. Now, by the time we get to 1814, um, Napoleon is coming out of Elba and going back into France. And um, the French government, by that time, they reinstated the king, and he sent uh, forces down to the to Italy in order to um, try to uh, capture Napoleon. Well, what happened was all these soldiers went down and they had been, they'd fought under Napoleon and they admired him. So it was sort of like a, a military victory parade for Napoleon as he went back to Paris. Um, so he was gaining power again now in 1814 so the British couldn't ignore it. But nevertheless, they were committed in America, and they had been very successful in 1813. So in 1814, their plan for the invasion through the South was in effect. And uh, they had marshaled a large um, group, up to 8,000 uh, soldiers and sailors, Marines, um, and they were ready to attack the South. Now, their, their objective was New Orleans. We, of course, didn't know about that. So while they were preparing for something like this, Andrew Jackson appeared on the scene in that he 
was at that time uh, a general in the militia for the state of Tennessee. And he'd also been elected as a senator, and he'd done done all sorts of things. So he was the powerful force. He actually, his animosity towards the English dated all the way back to the American Revolution. He was a teenager when the American Revolution started, and he acted as a courier when he was 13 years old in the Carolinas. And he was captured by the British, um, by their cavalry, and one of the cavalry officers was trying to get him to um, tell them what he'd been doing, and he refused to do it. So he used his saber and sort of whipped, lashed him, so that uh, Jackson actually had some scars uh, the rest of his life from that experience. And then also, his mother, his father, and his brother all lost their lives during the American Revolution. And she lost her life because she went to Charleston after the British captured Charleston. And she went down there to help the, the sick American prisoners. And then she became ill and she died. So Jackson hated the British, absolutely. However, in the spring of 1814, part of the problem was that the British, in collusion with the Spanish, did not want the Americans to expand into Florida or to expand north, I mean, to expand west towards Texas. So they got together and they also asked, got the some of the Indians uh, especially uh, in South Alabama and South Georgia. The Creek tribe was huge, and um, it possessed uh, almost half of Alabama and a huge portion of Georgia. So what happened is early that year, uh, the Creeks um, decided to stop expansion into their area, and uh, so they went around uh, and rounded up a lot of the uh, the English, Anglo-Saxon immigrants who were coming into their territory, and they assassinated them. They killed approximately 250 men, women, and children, and they were barbaric. When this happened, then the governor of Tennessee um, commissioned Jackson and over a thousand of their volunteers to go down and to take care of that problem. So in the spring of 1814, he went down there, and he actually surrounded them, and he eliminated that problem. So it was referred to often as a, as a war, but it wasn't an Indian war per se. It was all around basically one main, main battle in which he eliminated them and just confiscated their property, their land. Um, and we're talking about huge amounts of land. So Jackson was a force in being, and he was a, an active commander, and he became aware that the British ultimate goal was to go and capture New Orleans. So what he did, he went overland. He drove, went over through Mobile and then went on, on land again uh, over to New Orleans. Jackson got to New Orleans the 1st of December, 1814. Now, at that time, Jackson did not know that the British were so, their invasion was so imminent. 
Um, and he also did not know that the British had actually approached the pirates who lived in the swampy area outside of New Orleans and asked them and Indians to be their allies on their planned attack in New Orleans. But this we never learned until later. So they had made they had a long range plan on the New Orleans capture. So he comes into New Orleans with maybe a thousand or so men. But he also, meanwhile, has requested that more come down from Tennessee, also from Kentucky and uh, Louisiana and one or the other states in that area, and uh, that they also make an effort to mobilize anybody that would fight for the protection of New Orleans. So in order to be effective, he he implemented martial law in the middle of December 18. 14. He did this because it was such a conglomerate of French and English and German and French and English and Spanish and Indians and freed slaves. It was a mishmash. Um, so he said, martial law is going to prevail for the whole state of Louisiana and specifically in New Orleans. And he told the mayor, he told the governor and all the people that anything as far as action was going to be coming through him. He was uh, the commander for all of Louisiana and particularly for the defense of New Orleans. So this is what happened in mid-December 1814. Okay, so then what happens after that? Well, after that, um, the British were, meanwhile, they had formed their forces, and they'd gone down to Jamaica, and that's where the Navy had assembled down there and had brought in all these troops that they'd brought over from from Europe. So they had several thousands, and these were all combat-experienced soldiers and a number of ships to take care of them. They were, they were so optimistic, even, that the officers, the, both Army and some of the naval officers had had their their wives come with them because they were going to go to New Orleans and shop uh, after they conquered the city. It was it was really bizarre as you start reading about it, and um, that was they figured that this was going to be an easy conquest uh, because they had no idea of of what they were going to encounter. So a question, Colonel Rutledge, to finish out this segment. You said that the British were coming at three fronts, and and we've just kind of glossed over it. But they were thwarted uh, in the north, the Great Lakes, by... um, Correct. And then... uh, from from the seaboard, I guess the Battle of Fort McHenry. But you said we weren't prepared for this this kind of war. How again is it that that the Americans are able to push back the British when the forces are so formidable? Well, the problem is this: for us, we didn't have anything uh, as far as the East Coast to prevent them from doing what they did. But we were blessed with the fact that Jackson was there. Jackson had a a nucleus of an army that he was putting together, and he assembled 
these militia members from various states, and especially from Tennessee, and they were not held in high esteem. People thought, well, how can they fight these these conquerors of Napoleon, these soldiers? Um, well, in reality, they did. But the key to everything was Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was brilliant. He was a great leader, and uh, he was determined to do the job right. And what happened was he didn't know how close the British were coming. And uh, so the first time he even heard that the British had landed on the southern part of the peninsula that extends out into the Gulf from south of New Orleans, the first time he learned was on the 23rd of December, 1814. And when he learned it, he found out the British were only 20 miles south of New Orleans and were moving north. So what he did in that one day, he took the forces he had. He didn't have as many people. The British far outnumbered him. But he made a night attack against the British to stop them. And although the British outnumbered them, the British commander had divided his forces because he couldn't move them all quickly enough through those bayous and get them up there on good land. So he said, well, I'm going to wait until I can consolidate my army before I attack New Orleans. So he pulled back and sort of stayed, and it was in a holding position after the 23rd. Meanwhile, Jackson, after he repels the British from their movement towards New Orleans, he moved back another mile or two, and he started building a rampart out of dirt, building a wall um, to protect it. And we're talking about an area from the Mississippi on his right, because he's looking south, all, all the way over to the left, where you have the swamp. So we're, he had about a mile and a half or so that he had to, to put up this rampart and build it. And so he got all of his soldiers, he got volunteers from the city and everything else. And they went out with their shovels and they just started digging. And uh, they made walls uh, up to eight feet high and several feet back. And what they did, they took the dirt piled it up, and that created this big open hole in the front of it, which in turn water would come in because the water table is so low there. So he was creating like a moat in front of his wall, and the wall was, of course, contrary to what we've seen in movies and books, this wall was not made out of bales of cotton. Uh, a lot of times people used to say, that, yeah, this is what protected Jackson with all this cotton. Not true at all. Um, it was mud. It was, but what it turned out to be very effective defensive mechanism, especially when they got into a cannon shooting war battle on the first of January. 1815. Oh, my gosh. Okay, let's go to break. I'm talking with uh, Colonel Bill Rutledge uh, about the Battle of New Orleans. We're leading up to all of that and the, and the War of 1812. Absolutely fascinating. It's, you know, it's happening during this time as we're broadcasting this show. Uh, but we have these conversations because of our sponsors like Karen Levine. 
There are always opportunities in changing markets, and the Metro real estate market is no exception. That is why you need to work with seasoned REMAX Alliance realtor Karen Levine when you buy your home, sell your home, consider the opportunities of a new build, or explore investment properties. Rising interest rates are spurring creativity, innovation, and opportunity in the real estate and mortgage markets. Kim Munson highly recommends award-winning REMAX realtor Karen Levine. Call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516 for answers to all your real estate questions. That's 303-877-7516. And I am blessed to work with amazing sponsors uh, and partners. These are people that strive for excellence in their businesses and how they work with their customers and their products. And one of those great partners is John Boson with Boson Law. And as you all know, we are pre-recording these shows for this week. And John Boson, uh, welcome. It's great to have you on the line. Great to be on the line with you, Kim. And this is broadcasting, uh, let's see, the day after Christmas on the 26th. And so we're in Christmas week, looking into the new year. What's your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, wish everybody uh, uh, a Merry Christmas. Hopefully they had a Merry Christmas. And, um, you know, we've, we've got a new year. And uh, people make resolutions, and it's at, at that time of year to make commitments to do things differently or uh, to hit certain goals and, and things like that. So I guess I kind of wanted to talk today, Kim, about what I see as a personal injury attorney and how accidents affect people, affect families. Uh, and sometimes I, I see the really terrible part of, of life when a family loses a loved one, when a, a wife loses a husband, a husband loses a wife, a family loses a child. And kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that, if, if you can go there. Uh, that's, I mean, that's tough, but it is also a reality. So, yes, what's your thoughts on that? My thoughts are this. I meet with people families, survivors um, after an accident, and sometimes that accident takes that loved one away. And I hear the same thing over and over from family, from from the husband, from the wife, from the son, from the daughter, um, and other family members. Oh, we, we were going to do this, and, and now dad's gone, and, and we won't get that opportunity. And, and it can be that trip of a lifetime. It can be the father and son that plan to go on a hunting trip up in Canada uh, or a fishing trip down in New Zealand. Um, I, I hear these things all the time. And I have, as a constant reminder because of my line of work, that tomorrow is not promised. We do not know what's going to happen when we wake up that morning. And so my, my thought for folks out there is if, if you've got something you want to do with someone, and you keep talking about it, but you haven't done it or haven't planned it, get it done. Same thing with family members who who maybe had a riff with a sister or a brother or someone uh, or, or a father or mother. Reconcile. Because when you lose someone, that opportunity is gone, and it haunts the survivors. And, um, you know, it, it's just it's really tough sometimes hear the stories and, and to hear just the incredible grief because not only did they lose a loved one, but they didn't say I love you. They didn't mend a riff. They didn't have that last opportunity because that person was taken away from them. 
Well, and to I want you... listeners to know they, they, they have that opportunity. Don't let you know another day go by without taking care of some of those things. Well, and uh, to that point, uh, as you know, I do a lot of work with veterans, and uh, also I, I had the great honor to emcee an event down at the Center for American Values uh, with uh, Medal of Honor recipient Jim McLuhan. He received the Medal of Honor 48 years after uh, his service in Vietnam, but uh, when he was in Vietnam, he during during the the battle where he ended up um, being awarded the Medal of Honor. He made this deal with God. He said, if, you, if, you, if I get out of here alive, I'm going to tell my dad I love him. He said it, he and his dad, they knew they loved each other, but they were kind of the, you know, you never really said that. And so he said when he got off the plane and saw his father, that was the first thing he did. So just that simple, I love you, is so important. We've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, I, I, and make sure you get your phone number out there, uh, John Boson. But uh, what, what's your final thought? Um, God is real, and people need to understand that. And again, we don't know when our time is up, so have that relationship with God. Um, my number, folks know it. The most important thing is this time of year, let your loved ones know you love them. Do the things you plan to do. Don't just keep putting them off. And men rifts between family members. Great advice, John Boson. And I'll give that number, 303-999-9999. I'm so excited for our continued partnership in 2024. Thank you, John Boson. Thank you, Kim. You keep fighting that fight. Boson Law is a local law firm dedicated to helping injured individuals in Denver and the surrounding areas fight for the justice they deserve. Boson Law focuses on personalized representation tailored to your unique situation with one-on-one attention and counsel and consistent communication. Boson Law personal injury attorneys have extensive trial experience and have successfully represented clients against the interests of powerful corporations, manufacturers, insurance companies, and government agencies. Contact Boson Law at 303-999-9999 for a complimentary in-person consultation. Again, that number is 303-999-9999. Call now at 303-999-9999. Focused and wise marketing is essential for your success, especially during tough economic times. If you love the Kim Munson Show, strive for excellence and understand the importance of engaging in the battle of ideas that is raging in America. Then talk with Kim about partnership, sponsorship opportunities. Email Kim at KimMunson.com. Kim focuses on creating relationships with individuals and businesses that are tops in their fields. So they are the trusted experts listeners turn to when looking for products or services. Kim personally endorses each of her sponsors. Again, reach out to Kim at KimMunson.com. Franktown Firearms Training Programs have something for every age and skill level in the friendliest gun range in town. With highly skilled men and women instructors, you're sure to find the right instructor for your needs. Franktown's 10-lane, 30-yard shooting range provides the right place to train where you feel confident and ready to learn. Whether you're a beginner or a seasoned veteran, Franktown Firearms will meet your needs. Training runs from simple gun safety and care to obtain your concealed carry permit or honing your skills with advanced tactical moving and shooting. The Special Forces Green Beret Trainer has you covered. 
And women, you won't want to miss Ladies' Night, the first Friday of each month, where you can bond and train together. Gift certificates for training are available over anything in their fully stocked store. And Franktown is a faster Colorado certified training site. Just go to klzradio.com slash franktown to get shooting today. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. Welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice, and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you should not have to force people to, to do it. And wanted to mention Janssen Photography. Uh, they are located right here in Lakewood, Colorado. Uh, Glenn and Mary uh, Jansen are truly entrepreneurs, and uh, they just do beautiful work. Glenn totally understands lighting, which there's a real talent to that. And so whether or not it is a portrait of the family or of children or that important photo for your business or political career, Jansen Photography can help you. And that uh, website is Jansen Photography. That's J-A-N-S-S-E-N Photography.com. I'm talking with Colonel uh, Bill Rutledge, 95 years old. Uh, has traveled the world, has this deep intellectual curiosity uh, about so much. And he said, let's talk about the Battle of 1812, specifically the Battle of New Orleans. And uh, so we're in part one. We're going to be doing two parts. The next, the part two, will broadcast as part of America's Veterans Stories on Sunday, January 7th. So Colonel Rutledge... um, uh, Andrew Jackson has built these ramparts uh, out of mud, and uh, it's going to be very critical. What else is going on with all of this? Well, first of all, um, the key was the 23rd, to stop the British. So the British fell back, and and the Americans and all the people around New Orleans and the British militia that were coming in all started work. They had one week. To do, to do all this work, and they did. So they concentrated everything they could to do it. And um, Jackson was approached by the pirates. Now, they didn't call themselves pirates. They called themselves privateers because they were commissioned by different countries to go out and capture ships and cargo. They weren't out there just to kill people like the old pirates. Um, so anyhow, um, the leader of the pirates who were out and lived out on near the marsh area and had their own ships way south and east of uh, New Orleans, they volunteered. And uh, he turned them down because he thought they wouldn't be trustworthy. Well, the mayor of New Orleans and the governor of the state said, you're making a mistake, General, said, first of all, they have got a lot of ammunition and a lot of gun, a lot of guns. And he said, furthermore, on all of their ships, they got cannon. And he said, they're the best shots in the whole area. So he thought again and realized he was short on ammunition, and he didn't have as many good guys to run, to man his cannon that he needed. So what ultimately happened is, during that week, they started building platforms, put the cannons on, and they gained access to all of these very experienced um, pirates who 
manned the, the cannon aboard ships. And Jackson then worked with them in strategically placing them between the Mississippi River and the, and the swamp way over on the left side. And the, and the pirates also said, we will protect your left flank so the British cannot come around because we will have our forces over there in the marshland, which they did. And they were very successful when the battle ultimately came. Um, one of the interesting things about it, the leader of them was Jean Lafitte. Now, there were two Lafitte brothers, but John was the political leader and the one that most people looked towards. And I have to interject something personal on that because it also had a bearing on how I got so interested in this subject. Uh, when I was a lieutenant in the Air Force back in the early 50s, um, I used to be on a member of a court-martial, and one day this new officer came in. He was a staff judge advocate, man, he's an attorney, and he would be working with our court-martials. Very tall, handsome guy, um, and uh, he had a little accent, so I asked him where he was from, and he said, New Orleans. And uh, I asked him about his schools, and he said, yes, he went to Tulane, he went to Loyola from Portland's Law School. I said, well, what's your name? And he says, my name is Jean Lafitte. <laughs> I knew enough about history that I immediately it caught my attention. And I said, are you a descendant? Are you a relative? And he said, direct, seven generations, Jean Lafitte. I, I never could forget that. When, even when I was in the hospital with the COVID, I asked people, do you know the story about the pirate? <laughs> so I'd, I'll tell them about John Lafitte. Oh, that's so anyhow, fascinating. John, John Lafitte, um, he organized things. And those men manned most of the cannons um, that were in defense of New Orleans. And he had a few guys that were pretty good snipers also. And the big thing, though, he provided a lot of ammunition and small arms for people who did not have weapons because there were many people coming out from New Orleans who were volunteering to help, but they didn't have any guns. Now, not only did they build the big eight-foot rampart, but to be on the safe side, Jackson, once that was finished, they started on the second uh, rampart, which they built about a mile back behind the other. And that was their fallback position so that if they were not able to hold the front, then they would go back to the second. And then there was also an assembly area for all these volunteers from the city who went out and they stood back behind there during the battle, which was to come. So they were ready if they could get guns, but most of them didn't even have weapons. So this was a... It was very important, the role that the pirates played in here, because when it came down to it, it turned out that their accuracy was better than the, than the British accuracy with the cannons. And oh my all gosh. that will transpire on the first day of January 1815. Okay, well, stay tuned for part two, and that will be on America's Veteran Stories on Sunday, January 7th. Colonel Rutledge, this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Okay, and uh, our quote for the end of the show, I went to Andrew Jackson. And he said, when the time for action arrives, stop thinking and go in. And uh, so, my friends, today, be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. So God bless you. God bless America. And like I say, we're doing these shows, these very special shows, uh, recording them for Christmas week. And I just wish uh, you and your families just a very, very blessed week. Commentators, hosts, their guests, and callers. They are not necessarily the views and opinions of Crawford Broadcasting or KLZ Management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station.